Namaste. So we continue with Collected Works of the Mother, Volume 3. And as we know, it has two parts. One is our conversations from 1929 to 1931. And the second part is Dhammapad. So the interesting part is that while the conversations are uh, 29 to 31, are the first set of conversations which she has taken with a group of disciples and uh, last time I mentioned Miss Dorothy Hodgson but I later on confirmed it's not about her it's another English disciple I don't remember the name uh, with whom the set of uh, people used to gather and conversations were taking place and uh, uh, the other part Dhammapad is in uh, August 1957 to September 1958 so they are last of the, almost last of the classes. Because um, before that, uh, we have host of classes from 51 onwards, 50, 51, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58 is one volume. And then we have this uh, volume 9, in which we see the last class, Wednesday class, last class taken in the playground is in, uh, in November 1958. Whereas the last class of Dhammapada is part of the Friday class, which is in September 1958. So, why did the mother take up these classes? There's a little bit of background about it. So, because she has already covered most of the ground, why did in 1957 to 58 she take up Dhammapada? So, though this is not mentioned officially, but people who were present and I had discussions with them, so it seems that uh, after uh, giving the highest of knowledge, she saw that you know people are not even ready for the basics. So uh, Dhammapad was like a basic uh, course where people get at least trained how to control the mind, how to control the speech, how to control behavior, how to control a conduct, how not to have a certain kind of thoughts towards other. So these were not, though they are the last classes, she saw that people need to have at least even the basics of life and for that Dhammapad and Buddha's teachings give a very beautiful, lay a very beautiful foundation stone for self-mastery and self-conquest. So uh, we see these classes. The second interesting part about the Dhammapad is and the mother's teaching is that the mother was obviously not doing an intellectual study of the Dhammapad. Um, none of the yogis will do that. She was an adept in the Buddhist yoga and the yoga of the Gita and the Kundalini yoga before she met Sri So She already had the realizations of the Raj yoga and the Kundalini yoga. She speaks about it before 1910. She already had her realization with the inner divine as well as the yoga of the Gita. She was an adept in the yoga of the Gita when she was handed over a copy of French French translation of the Gita. Uh, I think it was Janindra Chakravarti who was husband of Yashodama who was guru of Krishna Prem. So that, and she read it and she understood that Krishna represents the immanent divine within the next few months she had realized that yoga of the Gita. And she was also an adept in yoga of the Buddha and um, Buddhist yoga. Uh, 
Shubhendu's words, Buddhist yoga, which is very interesting, and she was an adept in that. And there is a very interesting communication she receives from Gautamada Buddha. She has signed it as Sakyamuni, which is the name of Gautam Buddha. He was the king belonging to the prince, belonging to the Shakya clan. So that's how he is also known as Sakyamuni. So he comes in one of her um, visions in, in while she was in Japan. And he speaks to her and he says that I know you are hesitating to reveal the diamond which is in your heart. But you should reveal it. And then he says that, see, even I hesitated. Uh, but uh, I know that nobody understands. But who, when has man understood the divine? And he makes something very interesting observation. He says, I have come to you uh, out of deep love just as you loved me once. Which of course is refers to in this very life when she has... She has not mentioned all this but it's evident because she was an adept in the Buddhist yoga. Only a couple of places the mother speaks about uh, uh, her practice of Buddhism. One is when she speaks about her friendship with Alexandra David Neal who was a Buddhist. And much later she came to ashram in the 60s. Also she has met Shirobindo so earlier also. And there is a very interesting conversation. The mother would see the Buddha around her. And she would tell her that the Buddha loves you. And, and she would not accept it. Because according to her, Buddha is in Nirvana. So not realizing that... Now a lot of people say that Buddha is turning away from... The threshold of nirvana is just a fable, you know, which has been uh, created by the Mahayana or some other schools of Buddhism. But where Shurabindu and the mother both have put their stamp on it, that this is, they have not written that this fable is true. But they have quoted this uh, story and the mother particularly speaks about the Buddha still being present. So I take it that, you know, the word of the yogi is in Aptavakya Praman. And someone like the mother and Shurabindu, and she said, but uh, she could never accept it, that he would be there and, you know, he would have love because nirvana means complete stillness and silence. So all these conceptions have been there. There are very interesting experiences of the mother with Buddha. One of them is about the blue face and, you know, serene face which comes uh, to her, many other um, things. And therefore, the commentaries of the mother on Dhammapad. Uh, are um, something similar to Shurabindo's commentary on S's on the Gita. So S's on the Gita is Shurabindo's identity with Sri Krishna. So we can imagine what those commentaries mean. S's on the Gita are as if Sri Krishna is coming and writing, upgrading the Gita that he has spoken on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. And similarly, taking in a similar vein, this is as if the Buddha came again. Once again, as if, but as if he came again and spoke through her so that people, because people had misunderstood his message and in a way she is putting things in focus. And while we read it, three things we have to remember. One is uh, she had the Pali text translated in French and the classes were in French and later on they were translated into English and the mother approved them. This is the first part. <clears throat> More or less... All the major aphorisms have been covered. Now she has not commented on every aphorism, but some of them she has given commentary at length. Some she has just, uh, after six, seven, eight aphorisms, she has just given a short commentary, depending on how she felt the necessity uh, to comment upon it. 
And the third thing is something which Shurabindu says very interesting and so important in contemporary times that every scripture has these two aspects. One which is eternal, eternal truths. And the second is which is temporal, which is needed for that time. So, and then Shubhinda says, for example, in the Gita, most of it is eternal truth. Few things are connected with those times. So, similarly, we can say that, well, the Dhammapada also has many things which are eternal truths uh, or truths which at a stage of evolution of human beings are required universally. But at the same time, it will have certain things which, uh, with the coming of Sri and the mother, truths which were not revealed to mankind for a certain purpose. So they have added that, brought in that new dimension, and that to mother comments on the Dhammapad. So uh, it's very interesting because uh, Buddha's thought is very prevalent in the Western world, outside the borders of India. It's there in India also, but mainly outside the borders of India. And Swami Vivekananda speaks about it, that why Buddhism, and Shurabindu also says in his evening talks, why Buddhism couldn't take that kind of route in India as it took outside India. Whereas, of course, Gita is a very universal book. So between them, they have covered these two very powerful uh, spiritual or divine personalities, two avatars, the Gita by Shurabindu and the Buddha by the mother, whose influence upon the world is still considerable. That is something which is undeniable and positive influence. Let me put it like that. I mean, influences can be of various kinds. And <clears throat> Christ, of course, is another avatar with a great, tremendous influence. But then we don't have anything written or spoken directly by him. Of course, the New Testament is there and there are several versions. And all of them are like something like teachings of Christ where he, something like the conversations that he had by the disciples. But nothing which can be uh, of this class like, the Dhammapada and uh, the Gita. Christ is great, but that's where the uh, lacuna is there because once you don't have much of spoken or written material, there are always uh, there is always scope of interpretations and fill in the gaps uh, kind of thing. So with this background, we can read some of the portions from the Dhammapada. My own suggestion is this is a must-read book. So I had myself done this uh, error Initially, when I was reading the mother's works, uh, after reading with, along with Sri works, I thought, Dhammapad, okay, this is Buddha's teaching, so I can <laughs> keep it for later. And then something kept calling me back, no, 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 you, you must also read this, you shouldn't uh, skip. So I had gone to volume 4, volume 5, volume 6, and my method of reading was, even in the washroom, I'll read, I'll, I'm standing in the queue for something, I'll read. Um, it was just, it had caught fire. So then I went back and I saw this is so power, beautiful in terms of real time practice. So before we can talk about like Sharvindra's yoga is like uh, a PhD. But uh, the Dhammapada lays the foundations of, because if we don't have even basic self-control, control of the mind, control over thoughts, control over desires, control over our egoisms, then uh, supramental yoga is a far cry. So this is how uh, I look at it. Of course, there would be different ways of looking at it. So with that background, I'll read some of the writing which I have selected. But as I said, the whole of... Uh, it's, it's a really very good handbook. And the mother wanted people to read this. This also I am told by somebody who was present in the class. <clears throat> One of the aphorisms I picked up randomly... 
If a man speaks or acts with an evil mind, suffering follows him as the wheel follows the hoof of the bullock that pulls the cart. Very powerful. Karma and its consequence. But karma here is not physical act. It is the state of the mind. Evil mind. He is not speaking about if you do this act and that is evil. It is the evil mind. And the mother says, that is to say, ordinary human life such as it is in the present world is ruled by the mind. Therefore, the most important thing is to control one's mind. So, we shall follow a graded or conjugate discipline to use the Dhammapada's expression in order to develop and control our mind. So, we see that there are conjugate verses in the Dhammapada. So, he will speak about what happens when you have an evil mind and then the next verse will be what happens when you speak with a good mind. So, they will be like um, conjugate verses. They complement each other. Now, this is a very long passage and I am just reading a very small portion of it. But those who want to know how to master thought, it is there in volume 2, but it is there here also. And I am reading only the summary part. The mother describes in great length. There are four movements which are usually consecutive, but which in the end may be simultaneous. So what are these four movements of thought control and mind control? To observe one's thoughts is the first. Obviously, we don't even know what we are thinking. We are not able to separate and look at these thoughts. The next step is impossible. To watch over one's thoughts is the second. Meaning thereby we will see that this thought is not a good thought. Maybe a passing thought. By good and bad, it's not about, uh, not talk just about moral things, but about higher things, spiritual things. To, to feel, um, for instance, to have bad will. Somebody should be hurt, somebody should be harmed. You want to harm somebody. Or you have a thought of anger. You have a thought of fear. And you can catch it. So watch over one's thoughts. Don't allow. So you see, when we talk about rejection, this is so important. So, to watch over one's thought is the second. To control one's thought is the third. So, when we see this thought is coming, this is an angry thought, I am not being generous, I am being very, uh, not only critical, but uh, I am being bitter. Don't allow it. And it's only possible when we look at the thoughts. So, watch to observe the thoughts. And we can only see if we are non-judgmental. Otherwise, many thoughts will be automatically censored and they will remain. So to observe the thought, then watch over them as they are entering and then to control. Don't allow which... Control literally means like passport control. (laughs) Who will be let in, who will not be let in is the third. And to master one's thought is the fourth. Meaning thereby that now we think what we want to think. So we bring in those thoughts which we want because thoughts are circulating all over the world like energy is circulating all over this universe but we tap in and the human body has developed systems, uh, physical systems like a machine to tap into sources of vital energy. Similarly, the human brain and the nerves, they have developed systems to tap into the universal world of thoughts. There they are circulating as vibrations, states of consciousness and we pick them up. The brain receives them. And then the brain machinery, the synapses, the, the dendrites and all the nervous system, it takes it like a computer and translates in them into sentences and words. And it's very interesting how the brain operates. See, it is the same system, say within 
me and supposing I had a twin born of the same mother. Now this twin may have grown on a different language, like bachpan se alag ho gaye, mele mein bichad gaye. You know, they are separated. Interesting part is in that person the thoughts will translate into that language which has formed its base. So this whole idea of a completely mechanistic model it cracks. These are very simple common sense things. How come the person receives these vibrations, but the thoughts take a different form? They take a form, for instance, in English it, it may be how do you do, but in Hindi aap kaise ho? Kaisa chal raha ye? How does this happen? How does the those from what base they pick up? And the brain uh, displays it like you have the language options in a computer. So it's very fascinating. And so the final is mastery means I will let only those first is control. I don't allow certain thoughts to come in. Mastery means I will draw certain thoughts. Thoughts that can climb to the highest reaches. Thoughts that can rise to the spiritual mind and beyond. Thoughts that can transmute into revelation. That's called thought mastery. And in the Vedas it's known that there are nine or ten levels of thought. And there comes an ultimate way. Even Shubhita uses the word supramental thought. And there is a thought where in one single phrase or maybe one word, you can communicate a whole world. That's how Mother and Shubhita would communicate. And a classic example is the single word which opened the doors uh, of the highest consciousness in Sri Krishna. How did it open? All that was said by Gaurishi is Achyutam. The unfallen. Now you see, normally unfallen for us, Sri <laughs> Krishna, okay, one that has never fell from the heights of consciousness. One phrase which changed, um, which, which led to the self-realization of Rishi Janak. What was the phrase? Astavakra simply tells him, while you are straddling across the horse, putting the saddle and climbing, just give me all that is yours. That's all. And the man paused. <laughs> what is mine? Soon he realized there is nothing mine. But the Guru has said, give me what is yours. And he is, for three days I believe he stood there, that what is mine? And he ended up discovering that there is nothing which I can call mine. He was a free person. Just imagine that one sentence communicated so much. So these thoughts can climb. Tattvamasi. Aham Brahmasmi, these are the thoughts which come from those domains where one single thought has the power to transform human life. So, this is called thought mastery. And then as I said, um, all that to get rid of an evil mind, for we are told that the man who acts or speaks with an evil mind is followed by suffering as closely as the wheel follows the hoof of a bullock that ploughs or draws the cart. This is our first meditation. It's very interesting. These were uh, many of the places we'll see that this is the kind of meditation. And in volume 2 also, Mother says, uh, one of the ways of meditation which nowadays we hardly hear, we hear concentration which is akin to meditation, all kinds of things. Meditation is a mental process. You pick up a thought. The highest meditation, for instance, is on this idea that God is in all. All is in God and all is God. So this meditation that, well, I must master the thoughts. And then you'll discover ways and means. One will start observing the thoughts. So these were meditations. These are meditations on which we can meditate and 
progress on the path. Second one is very fascinating. Everything is fascinating, but how the mother gives adds value. And as I said, there are things which were very wonderful during Buddha's time. They are still wonderful. But something is missing. And how she answers. Another aphorism is for in truth. In this world, hatred is not appeased by hatred. Hatred is appeased by love alone. This is the eternal law. May look like Gandhiji's thought. Not at all. He never spoke of hatred being appeased by love. He spoke about don't, you should not react, you should be non-violent. But that apart, even when we say that, well, you love those who hate you. Wonderful. But there is still a but. And she will bring out very beautifully the power of the thought and she will add something to it. And the mother says, this is one of the most celebrated verses of the Dhammapada. One of the most often cited. I would have liked to be able to say one of the most obeyed in the world. I have seen Buddhists claiming to be Buddha's followers who, who, who speak big about Buddha, but still hate, jealousies, all these things come in. So if you are really a follower, this is the one you should obey. So that's what sincerity is about. So obeyed in the world. Unfortunately, that would not be true. This is, would be sincerity. When you speak about you know, if you are a follower of Buddha, you should follow what Buddha has said. For people speak much of this teaching but do not follow it. This applies to almost every great luminous ones. Yet, there is one aspect of the problem which is less spoken of. You see, there she is now elaborating beautifully. But which seems perhaps most urgent still if you want things to change in the world. Something to which people give very little thought, I am going to surprise you. So what is it that she is going to say? It is this, if love must be returned for hatred, in order that the world may change, would it not be even more natural that love should be returned for love? So spontaneous, true, natural, and yet when you look at the world, in what context he is saying especially, If one considers the life and action and heart of men as they are, one would have every right to be surprised at all the hatred, contempt or at best the indifference which are returned for this immensity of love which the divine grace pours upon the world. For this immensity of love which acts upon the world at every second to lead it toward the divine delight and which finds so poor a response in the human heart. Now we see, it is so strange, it is so true. And especially the mother and Shubindo are the ones who have suffered it most. Because even till date, you will see people having strange resistances. After all, what have mother and Shubindo done for whose sake? For us. They didn't take anything for themselves and yet the resistance... What do people return? It should be the right, that whole passage in Savitri. It's thorns of fallen nature are the difference. How mankind, how they mock at me, both uh, gods and men, or God demons and men. He speaks about that. 
that oh he is hoping something which is impossible instead of at least if you just i personally feel if you just acknowledge the love and compassion first time you have a great luminous being an avatar guru yogi call whatever who have cared about that question which nobody has even raised everybody talks about mukti salvation nirvana what about those who struggle who cannot when shubhinda was asked that uh, you know okay those who open to the mother they will go through it is true what about those who cannot and shubhinda says it is for them that i want to bring down the supermind because there are people who cannot they don't even know and the supermind will act to give them a possibility because the change of earth consciousness so for the first time we have them think about the problem of earth problem of mankind and not just men and yet look the amount of doubt hostility the amount of resistance that the human heart has toward them and then she says something even more interesting but people have compassion only for the wicked the deficient the misshapen for the unsuccessful ones and the failures and then she says something we must remember truly it is an encouragement to wickedness and failure very straight very clear oh you are so bad no no i must love you please come have nice halwa puri so what happens what happens to the world because you are doing it you are encouraging the wicked in their wickedness now this is side now why buddha didn't buddha knew this but in buddha's time things were different there were people who were you know full of that those petty hates and desires <coughs> so this was perfectly true now it needs to be qualified when you have hitlers and you have the taliban and you have isis you need to qualify this because if you don't qualify you will misapply the great teaching so you see how the mother brings out this other aspect <coughs> and then she gives a final thought if one thought a little more of this aspect of the problem perhaps one would have less need to insist on the necessity of returning love for hatred because if the human heart responded in all sincerity to the love that is being poured into it with the spontaneous gratitude of a love which understands and appreciates then things would change quickly in the world okay and then so basically as if our love is going to change people who are hating into paragon of virtues what is more important is that she says already there is love pouring into the heart of human beings they are not responding to it the divine is loving us from every side if only human hearts could open to the divine love so she is upgrading it if one thought a little more of this aspect of the problem perhaps one would have less need to insist on the necessity of returning love for hatred because if the human heart responded in all sincerity to the love that is being poured into it with the spontaneous gratitude of a love which understands and appreciates then things would change quickly in the world so this is how it goes and uh, i'll just pick up some more <clears throat> 
For instance, one of the sayings is um, Whosoever can sustain his zeal, remain pure in his actions, act wisely, restrain his passions, live according to the law, he shall see his renown increase. Now the mother explains, The promise of a good name does not seem to me quite worthy of the Buddhist teaching. So normally, you know, one can interpret like that. If I live according to the law, my renown will increase. It probably meant something else. And to live according to morality, one must know which morality is intended. For it is the usually recognized social morality, that also does not seem to me a very alluring promise. If you look at Buddha's own life, so it's not according to the social standards. Those who have decided to abandon all worldly weaknesses certainly do not care about satisfying social morality nor about acquiring a good name. So you see how she has upgraded. Otherwise this, somebody can pick it up and may well say that, well, it's perfectly fine. And all that the Buddha is teaching us to live according to certain moral principles and it will bring us yash. Then she adds, to sustain one's zeal is an excellent thing. To remain pure in one's action is also indispensable. To act wisely is also perfect. One cannot do it too often. To restrain one's passions that goes without saying is the beginning. But that conclusion? Exclamation mark. However, I see dharma has been translated here as law and yasha as renown. Whereas dharma should mean rather the inner truth and yash the spiritual glory. So she corrects it. That following the law is not about the moral law. That's how it is written in brackets, translated. It's about following the spiritual law. The law of one's own being. Swadharma as the Gita puts it. And Yasha is the, if you do that, then you have the spiritual glory. And see how close it comes to the Gita's teaching. Swadharmo nidhanam shreya paradharmo bhyavaha. Shreya. Gita uses the word shreya. It brings shreya. If you follow Swadharma and if you follow another alien dharma, alien dharma of course is not about religion, <laughs> no religions that time. But if you follow an alien way of life, imitate, copy somebody else, then it brings perdition. And this is what happened in a way to India. And I keep saying this, that see there are certain things which are perfectly valid in the western world. Because they are growing in a different way. They are on, let's say, step two. So you need to just say that everything, you know, freedom, liberal, freedom of speech, because you have, you have to reach that true freedom much later. That may not be valid even about food. So there are many things which are fine in the Western context, the climate, the milieu. But if you apply it in Indian setting, you may grossly misapply. Leaving aside the economic aspect about all these uh, stories. So this is how one has to see that there is uh, something which comes naturally. Even the bacteria of the gut change when you come from one place to another. So not to speak about the inner truth which uh, based on the type of humanity it changes. That's why Arjuna must fight and Buddha must go to the forest. And both are right. Because each is following his own true law of being. Otherwise both are doing immoral act. Arjun by killing his own people and Buddha by walking away from his duties and responsibilities. I mean if you technically try to.
So this is how she, uh, you know, then many things. And this is a very beautiful uh, little um, simile. Uh, one of the aphorism is, As the beautiful scented lily rises by the wayside, even so the disciple of the perfect, perfectly enlightened one, radiant with intelligence, rises from the blind and ignorant multitude. Now actually, if you read this aphorism, people say Buddha said there is no guru, no master, all you know. He is speaking of the disciple of the perfectly enlightened one. Buddha is not saying, you know, that simply like some of these Zen stories tell us, that just follow the path and forget. She's saying that the disciple, just being a disciple. And then she says there are some very wise recommendations in that whole aphorism. But something toward the end he says, And finally, lest you get discouraged by your own faults, the Dhammapada gives you this solacing image. They are very beautiful images that the mother has also given. And I wish somebody would make a compilation of these images. Maybe I am feeling it. <laughs> these images are beautiful images to meditate upon. So what is the image? The image is of the lily. So she says, what is this image? The purest lily can spring out of a heap of rubbish by the wayside. Why is this image so interesting? That is to say, there is nothing so rotten that it cannot give birth to the purest realization. Whatever may be the past, whatever may be the faults committed, whatever the ignorance in which one might have lived, one carries deep within oneself the supreme purity which can translate itself into a wonderful realization. See the Buddhist teachings, when looked at this perspective, you feel they are so, so much in tune with the Vedantic teachings. Even the words that he has used, Arya, Dharma. So, of course in Pali it would be Dhamma or I don't know the pronunciation. But the whole point is to think of that. Now this is a practical advice. Very, very, very practical and something which I have found very, very useful in everyday life. Here is this practical advice. To concentrate on that and not to be concerned with all the difficulties and obstacles and hindrances. And then just one liner. Concentrate exclusively on what you want to be. Forget as entirely as possible what you do not want to be. And I think this should be put both in the heart as well as everywhere. Concentrate exclusively. On what you want to be. Forget as entirely as possible what you do not want to be. But we do the opposite. We keep concentrating on the difficulties and the problems and we keep saying, therefore I cannot be that. We do just the opposite. So, here is the advice by the Buddha, the mighty one, as well as the mother, the gracious one. So, I'll put it like that. <laughs> of course, she's mighty, but here she has come as grace. Incarnate. So, then she speaks about old age and young age, something very interesting. There's a whole set of aphorisms on old age. The mother puts it there are young people who are old and there are old people who are young. If you carry in you this flame for progress and transformation, if you are ready to leave everything behind so that you may advance with an alert step, 
If you are always open to a new progress, a new improvement, a new transformation, then you are eternally young. But if you sit back satisfied with what has been accomplished, if you have the feeling that you have reached your goal and you have nothing left to do, but enjoy the fruit of your efforts, bourgeois ideal, a retired man's paradise, then already more than half of your body is in the tomb. And this used to be there as even as a child we used to get this advice. Hat paun chalte rahe. It was a way of saying that you should stay walking, keep doing your chores. Your body remains healthy. The moment you sit, oh, it's too much. I have done too much. And I have seen this. Within a month, two months, you are unable to get up from the bed. This whole idea of you know old age homes which has come up. On one side, it's okay that you you provide some care, but on the other side. We don't know. It may be impoverishing people because they are provided old age. Even in old days, that's how we saw our parents grow old. They would continue to work. They would continue to participate. That's how I at least envisage a future divine old age home, if at all. First of all, no old age, but also people will run it. It should be community care, and you have those support systems, of course. Otherwise, they get to the bed, they stop. That even the urge to live, and I have seen this. You know, people can decline very fast. So we should be. Do not look behind. Look ahead, always ahead, and go forward always. But obviously, that requires a completely different mindset. <clears throat> Now again, you see, we talk about that. No, no, no master, no guru. Here is what the Buddha says. The fool, who is the fool? You are not talking of any political character. The fool, because of his wrong views, rejects the teachings of the adepts, the noble ones, and the just brings about his own destruction, as the fruit of the bamboo kills the plant. Another image that the plant is destroyed if you have the fruits coming out. and then she speaks about the entire thing about ego egoism and how it uh, is needed and how fools follow their own in the freedom of their thought the egoistic way of life refusing to follow the way of the wise that's why even people often say that well what is god doing for the world and i keep reminding God has come so many times in flesh and blood as avatar, in between vibhutis, in between saints and sages and seers, left behind us countless books. We don't want to follow them, and now I say, what is God doing for the world? Still, He is doing because, anyways, it is His world, and He has become this. That's a different matter altogether. But the least we can do is to uh, hold Him guilty. He has done. If we had followed even the very first teachings. life would have been beautiful so and then we hear in buddha's teachings about the four truths and the eightfold path that lead to annihilation of suffering fortunately even that is there and described in quite a bit of detail i'll just read quickly the four noble truths are life just imagine this is the means given to us 
but the mother says in 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 buddhism uh, and i have also known in some other paths there is a meditation on death that you know you are going to die in she says that is not what we follow because it is not the eternal truth for us that you know death is inevitable and then she says because at that point of time shrivindo's teaching was not there the world was not ready so we meditate upon eternal life the divine life life taken in the sense of ordinary life the life of ignorance and falsehood is indissolubly linked with suffering suffering of the body and suffering of the mind so noble truth is life if we take it in this sense if we continue to lead it the way we are leading it brings suffering because these four noble truths are meant to so life should be led in a different way and that's why the eightfold path second noble truth is the cause of suffering is desire which is caused by ignorance so first is dukkha suffering and the second is cause of suffering is desire it is the nature of it is caused by ignorance of the nature of separative life number 3 there is a way to escape from suffering to put an end to pain we know that the first teaching was dukkha if you look at life it is full of suffering second is cause of suffering is desire mother adds it's because of ignorance and third is there must be a way there is a way to come out of suffering and desire and the fourth is nirvana the liberation this liberation is obtained by following the discipline of the eightfold path which purifies the mind from the ignorance the fourth truth is called the method of the eightfold path so this is how she puts it and what is the eightfold path eight stages correct seeing to see things as they are that is to say a pure accurate vision the best vision we know that how we distort things emotions distort our own preconceived ideas our own passions excitement our um, preferences they all distort us seeing so first is correct seeing second is correct intention or desire that's how it is said but the same word desire should not have been used that's what she says obviously because we have just been told that we should not have desire it is rather correct aspiration so she replaces that word with aspiration to be freed from attachment and to have kind thoughts for everything that exists to be constantly in a state of kindness to wish the best for all always see again the upanishad that you know sarve bhavantu sukhina sarve santu niramya so we should what should be our correct intention to fill this world with kind thoughts good will beautiful things to aspire for truth and beauty and good and harmony in us in all and in the world correct intention and or aspiration number 3 correct speech that hurts none never speak uselessly and scrupulously avoid all malevolent speech the mother has gone on to she has given a whole meditation on one of the wednesdays only on the harm done by incontinence of speech and she goes on to say it is like committing spiritual suicide if you speak not only unkindly but in slander and gossiping and and uh, with words which are obviously uh, words full of ill will and malevolent thoughts and she says it's like committing spiritual suicide correct way of living not to cause harm or danger to any creature and she says this is relatively easy to understand 
but she says very clearly there also that some people put a handkerchief that I won't do harm to any creature. <laughs> That's not what it means. They carry this idea to extreme, and she says that some put a handkerchief, for example, not to swallow germs, to who have the path in front of them swept so as not to step on an insect. She says, but if you understand the text correctly, it means that one should avoid all possibility of doing harm. One must not deliberately endanger any creature. That's what it means. You can include here all living creatures. And if you extend this care and this kindness to everything that lives in the universe, it will be very favorable for your inner growth. Correct effort, number six. Correct effort. Do not make useless efforts for useless things. <laughs> so, waste of energy. People do that. You know, they want to go for a movie, so they are making all kinds of efforts. They want to go for just an outing or a picnic or whatever it is can go for it but what an effort what a waste of cooking uh, lavishly I mean it's okay you can cook nice simple things so all these kinds of effort which are not going to really nourish and help our inner life so this way otherwise all the energies are locked in ignorance and falsehood the seventh principle comes to confirm the sixth correct vigilance you must have an active and vigilant mind. Do not live in a half somnolence, half unconsciousness. And finally, correct contemplation. Not me and mine. Oh, this is my life. Why is it like that? God, please do something. Some magic miracle. My children are, don't care about me. I don't have enough bank balance. This is not correct contemplation. What is correct contemplation? Egoless thought. That's why the mother says, even... Asking for something for yourself. I mean, only with reference it can be for the divine work. Of course. Otherwise, he says, egoless thought concentrated on the essence of things. We can concentrate on, contemplate on truth, love, beauty, harmony, peace. On the inmost truth and on the goal to be attained. And then she says so many that, you know, when you have a kind of emptiness in life... People do foolish things to escape boredom. Instead, we should contemplate. And contemplate on the eternal, on the permanent. This itself can be very liberating. So she says, very beautiful practice. When you have a little time, whether it is one hour or a few minutes, tell yourself, at last I have some time to concentrate, to collect myself, to relive the purpose of my life, to offer myself to the true and the eternal. If you took care to do this each time, you are not harassed by outer circumstances, you would find out that you were advancing very quickly on the path. Instead, now this very useful advice, instead of wasting your time in chattering, in doing useless things, reading things that lower the consciousness, to choose only the best cases. I am not speaking of other imbecilities, which are much more serious. Even the best cases, reading useless things, reading you know novels which debase us, degrade us, or just chattering uselessly, meaninglessly. So, and then she finally says, it is better to be moderate, balanced, patient, quiet, but never to lose an opportunity that is given to you, that is to say, to utilize for the true purpose the unoccupied moment before you. So instead of becoming restless, when you have nothing to do, 
We run about, meet friends, take a walk to speak only of the best. Instead of that, sit down quietly before the sky, before the sea or under trees, whatever is available, possible. And then Mother Earth, here you get all of them. The sky, the tree, the sea. <laughs> and try to realize one of these things. To understand why you live. To learn how you must live. To ponder over what you want to do. And what should be done? What is the best way of escaping from the ignorance and falsehood and pain in which you live? And so life becomes a meditation. Whenever there are always moments one gets. These are moments when windows open into the infinite. The mother says every day there are windows that open into the infinite. But we get back and get trapped into the finite world. And finally, she closes this whole set of commentaries. Such is the conclusion of the Dhammapad and if we have put into practice to use its image only a mustard seed of all that has been taught to us, well, we have not wasted our time. Again, remember the Gita, Sri Krishna says, Swalpamasya Dharmasya, even a mustard seed, even a little. The mother says, a drop of practice is much more useful than an ounce of theories, resolutions and ocean of theories and good advices. So that drop of practice is important. Mother has given it the highest form. And there is one thing which is not spoken of here. In the Dhammapada, a supreme disinterestedness and a supreme liberation is to follow the discipline of self-perfection. So this is what is not there, it was liberation, we know that. So, in fact, in Jain literature, they do speak about self-perfection. But it's largely confined to individual arhat. And Shubhindo uses this term when he speaks about Arya, one who is a self-master, Swarat, then Samrat, and then perfected Aryan is Arihant. We have this word arhat. He is the Ultimately, who has perfected himself. The march of progress, not with a precise end in view as described here, the liberation or nirvana, but because this march of progress is the profound law and purpose of earthly life. The truth of universal existence and because you put yourself in harmony with it spontaneously, whatever the result must be. There, must, there is a deep trust in the divine grace, a total surrender to the divine will, an integral adhesion to the divine plan which makes one do the thing to be done without concern for the result. This is the perfect liberation and this is truly the abolition of suffering. Why this is perfect liberation? One is conditional liberation, withdrawal from the world, as it is understood, not as Buddha preached. The other is liberation while in the world because you are participating in the collective march of mankind with a supreme disinterestedness but a complete trust in the divine grace. This is truly the abolition of suffering. The consciousness is filled with an unchanging delight and each step you take reveals a marvel of splendor. And then she closes it very beautifully because she is also paying in a way a tribute to Buddha who came in her, in her life at a moment and asked her to share what she has got inside and uh, to share it with the world and she is paying a tribute. How? 
we are grateful to the buddha for what he has brought for human progress and as i told you at the beginning we shall try to realize a little of all the beautiful things he has taught us but we shall leave the goal and the result of our endeavor to the supreme wisdom that surpasses all understanding so as i said it's a for the basic practices anybody can follow it actually and uh, must follow before we talk about big things here you will find chunk of practices very elementary practice control of the mind control of the vital refinement of the mind purification of the mind purification of the vital buddha doesn't use the word vital because that that terminology is not there but mind includes desires and all, attachments and all those things which belong for us to the vital that's shobindu's terminology but mind control and mind mastery which are so important as first steps before we talk about the supramental uh, transformation ego conquest over egoism ultimately dissolution of the ego peace stillness how to occupy a moment which we have the true meditation true contemplation how to look at things in the true way so that we have a right understanding right perception right judgment right action right contemplation mastery over speech mastery over all that we get it through the senses all that the buddha teaches us and with what mother has added to it as i said just as as is on the gita is the upgraded edition of the gita the mother's commentary on the dhammapada to my personal view are an upgraded edition of the dhammapada put in context of today as well as as a step helpful step towards the greater yoga that they have revealed for earth and mankind thank you